welcome to Institute for Diplomacy and Economy channel. I am Hashim Tekinesh. I'm a researcher at the Institute. Today, we will talk about Turkey-Greece relations with my guest, uh, Dr. Spiros Katsoulos. Uh, Dr. Katsoulos is a strategic historian at the Institute for Institute of International Relations in Athens. His special interests are geopolitics, alliances, strategic culture, and diplomatic history. Uh, he has a book uh, on United States role in Turkey-Greece relations, uh, which was published by Rutledge in December 2021. Dr. Katsoulos has also uh, academic articles on Turkey-Greece and United States relations. relations. Dr. Katsoulos, uh, welcome to our show and thank you for accepting our invitation. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a great honor to be here and I'm looking forward to our discussion very much. Uh, uh, if, if, if you accept, uh, I would like to start with the elections in uh, both countries. Uh, both countries have recently held uh, very critical elections. Uh, in Turkey, uh, President, uh, President Erdogan defeated his uh, rival Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu and extended extended his term his uh, his term um but what was interesting uh, in the elections uh, is the rise of nationalism uh, in turkey uh, the nationalist allies and uh, the nationalist uh, parties and candidates uh, received very uh, uh, high uh, support from uh, turkish uh, voters um in the meantime, in Greece, uh, Prime Minister Mitsotakis uh, has won a great uh, victory, uh, but he is running for uh, an, another election to win a majority that will enable him to establish uh, one uh, establish a new government by himself. Um, so, uh, can we say that uh, nationalism is in in rise in both countries, or? Uh, do you agree with this uh, statement? Uh, uh, what is the differences between uh, two countries and the trends in uh, in terms of elections? That's a very hot topic, a very good question. When, when it comes to nationalism in Turkey and Greece, it's important to recognize that both countries have a somewhat short fuse, I would say. History has shown us how quickly tensions between the two countries escalate, how quickly we lose temper on both sides of the Aegean, and that's very sad. It's very confusing, given how much we have in common on a personal level, how much, how well we get along on a personal level. But at the same time, we both know, I'm afraid, how bitter we can be towards one another. And the matter of fact is that there are tangible as well as intangible reasons that keep us apart. So I would say that there is not such so much a rise in nationalism as a constant presence that sometimes lies dormant and sometimes becomes toxic, pretty toxic. So the norm, at least in recent history, in the past few years, is actually a state of tension. I would say that it's not so much a rise in nationalism as a constant presence that sometimes lies dormant and sometimes becomes toxic. And the norm, at least in recent history, in the past few years, is actually a state of tension. With the exception of the past few months, I would say. And when there is a fall like that, we see now, one naturally wonders why, why it's going, what is going on, what is behind that. 
So no one really believes it. One always suspects that something behind it. And one would like to believe it, but everyone is, is skeptical. And there are good reasons to be skeptical. The dispute hasn't been resolved. Issues are still there. Nothing has changed at the core. We only observe, I guess, a change in tone, not in, in, in essence. The same time, as you very well um, put it, uh, the elections in Turkey have indeed highlighted the growing influence of Erdoganism. Erdoganism as an ideological framework, I think. And the point is that Turkish society remains highly polarized. And this is a huge concern, I guess, for everybody in the region. And one consequence of this, I think, is the increasing importance of nationalism in Turkish politics altogether. And what we can observe in the past few uh, weeks before the elections, let's put it this way, is that the political landscape has shifted farther to the right. And farther to the right to the extent that ultra-nationalism, far nationalism, far right has nationalism, has actually become mainstream. And this can be a major, major concern for, at least for the secular parts, for traditional secular parts of, of, of Turkey. And what, what's, in my view, what's the biggest problem here is that in the long run, this shift to the right will inadvertently have an, an effect on domestic as well as on foreign policy. This is the danger of riding the tiger of nationalism, as, as we, we put it. And the problem is that it's very hard to step back from the tiger. Yeah. Um, yeah, in, relate, in relation with that, uh... You know, uh, last week, President Erdogan uh, announced his new cabinet. And uh, in contrast with the, this rise of nationalism, the new cabinet is, has been interpreted as, uh, an, uh, as an, uh, Erdo Erdogan's uh, will to uh, establish more cordial or uh, better relations uh, with the United States and European Union. Um, do you think uh, it is a, uh, it, it is a plausible expectation? Uh, uh, do, do you think in the in the new term, uh, in his new term, President Erdogan will establish uh, better relations with uh, the West? Well, we are all trying to decipher. Erdogan's moves, what yeah. is in his mind. So if we take a closer look at the new Turkish cabinet, I think we can observe three prominent figures and the new government as a whole, I would say that. It's Hakan Fidan, of course, Ibrahim Kalin and Mehmet Simsek. So what do we see here? We see the new foreign minister, Hakan Fidan, who previously served as intelligence chief for like 13 years or so. And, and now Ibrahim Kalin, who is the new intelligence chief, as you said, both come from Erdogan's inner circle. And I think that they were known for actually 
restraining somewhat President Erdogan's impulsive nature and character. And they were both working very well behind the scenes. Now, the difference is that they have risen to the forefront of power and they both hold influential positions. And what this shows us, I think, is that Erdogan depends on people he trusts absolutely. And this is, I think, the lesson learned from the past few years for him, for how to hold on to power. So he's very careful with his choices. So another way of looking at this is as we are all trying to see what's what's behind his moves, his choices, is that he's trying to mend fences with Turkey's neighbors and mainly with, with the West. Why is that? Well, well, Ibrahim Kalin has taken a softer tone towards the United States in the past. And he may seem as the best candidate to reach out to the West. And the fact that he recently called for a strategic conversation uh, with the West and the fact that he stressed the possibility of overcoming differences with allies implies, I guess, that there is some goodwill on the part of Erdogan that uh, things must be restored, let's say, let's put it this way. Hakan Fidan, the new foreign minister, on the other hand, uh, he also brings ex ex um, extensive experience as an intelligence chief particularly on his dealings with Syria and he and the um, improvement in the relationship with Russia, which also was the reason uh, that he was criticized by the West. And I think that he was the mastermind of various hybrid operations in countries like Syria and Libya. So, I think that this is um, this might be a question mark. We we will we will need to wait and see what goes on uh, with the new foreign minister. And um, the point is, as we said, they both come from Erdogan's inner circle, so we know we feel we we, we can safely uh, conclude that they both have the same ideas with Erdogan about Turkey's role in the region about Turkey's role in the world. And what is that? This is turning Turkey into a strong, pivotal state. Maybe something bigger than that. Maybe the balancer of the region. Maybe even beyond that. Maybe an independent pole among great powers. I think this is Erdogan's vision for Turkey. So we should not expect radical changes, I think. And this also applies to Greek-Turkish relations. After all, new defense minister Yassar Güler referred to the doctrine of Blue Homeland in his inauguration comments, which is another way to say that it's business as usual. So we might have something new. We might have some new phases, some new persons, but we don't think we have some new policies. And... The point, of course, remains that the United States also needs Turkey. And they know that Washington knows that very well, despite their disagreements with Erdogan. Well, the good thing is that we cannot speculate about this too much, 
The good thing is that we have a litmus test coming up. So we will soon know, know, I guess, and I'm talking about the next summit of NATO in Vilnius, that is in about a month from now, um, 12th July, something like that. And my feeling is that all sides will work hard to find a solution and make the relationship between the US and Turkey work again and may make it something more than simply a transactional relationship because they both have stakes in 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 that and the third person i didn't mention of course is mehmet simsek and why is he important he is important because turkey undoubtedly faces urgent challenges in the economic sphere and he seems like he's a key figure in the cabinet. It's, I think it's a way for Erdogan to say I was wrong <laughs> for in, in his economic policies. Why is that? Because Simsek was a former finance minister, of course, and he's a market veteran, veteran, and he has established some credibility abroad. So his appointment is expected to show Turkey's return to an orthodox economy not the Erdogan style of economics, and maybe restore some market confidence. Allow me to share this story with you. I was at a recent meeting at the Institute of International Relations where I had the opportunity to listen to American professor Henry Barkey, who is a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. So he pointed out several reasons why Erdogan needs to rethink his policies and the most important of all being the dire state of the Turkish economy. And one phrase stood out. He emphasized, Berkey, Professor Berkey emphasized that Turkey is bigger than Erdogan. And although Erdogan may sometimes think otherwise, <laughs> the reality is different. And Berkey suggested that Erdogan should recognize that the country depends on economic support from the West. And he said that Turkey needs very badly direct foreign direct investment. So West is one option. So far, we see this coming from countries like Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and even the Emirates uh, lately. But there might be other options. I would not leave China out of the game. This might be a game changer. This might be an opportunity for China to get involved. Uh, but we will have to wait and see how this goes. But uh, if we, uh, uh, if Erdogan somehow uh, improves, succeeds to improve uh, the relations with the West, does it automatically mean uh, a better relations with uh, Greece. Uh, can we assume that? Um, that's a good question. I think I think this is what the United States would like to see. Um, it's not very easy, and there are many rumors now. Uh, in both Turkey and Greece, that something is underway after uh, the election period is over in both countries. So this is not 
this is, there is nothing confirmed on that front, but I think there are rumors on both sides of the Aegean. We also had Erdogan's call for a new era in Turkish-Greek relations recently. Uh, it's interesting that a similar call was made from Athens. Uh, this is when, before the Turkish elections, Greek Prime Minister Mitsotakis expressed his willingness to engage in dialogue with the Turkish people, no matter who they elect. And after the elections, he sent another message of friendship to Turkey. And he stressed that continuous tensions between the two countries were not inevitable. So there, there, there should be a way, uh, there should be a solution, but we should remain cautious, I'm afraid. Um, why? I think both sides know that pretty well. Um, Mitsotakis explicitly said that any solution to the main conflicts, to the main disputes, should be in accordance with international law, which is the typical Greek position on the matter. And he also said that we have experienced ups and downs in our relations, and there is always a risk that tensions will arise again. And what this conveys is some skepticism, which I think exists in both sides of the Aegean. At the same time, I think it's important to remember that this is not just about Greece and Turkey. And if we look back into history, if we also look at recent regional developments, we notice that the global balance of power has a lot to do with local issues. So that is developments in the Ukraine war, what happens there, how, how the Ukrainian counteroffensive uh, will fare, what this will mean for Putin and his goals, um, as well as the level of tension between the US and China. Will we have another escalation there at some point? What about the frozen Cold War in the Middle East between Saudi Arabia and Iran? We haven't heard much about it lately, but it's there. <laughs> Sooner or later, it will defreeze and come back. So my point is that everything that happens along the Eurasian rim affects everything else. So it is, it is dangerous to make any predictions about Greek-Turkish relations as they act in void because much about it depends on what happens throughout the region. Um, you have already mentioned a little bit, uh, but uh, I want to uh, dive a little bit deep into the transformation of Turkish foreign policy in recent years. Um, in 2010s, uh, we were observing a more aggressive expansionist foreign policy uh, uh, of Turkey. But in recent years, Turkey uh, gives more weight to diplomacy and diplomatic relations. Uh, it has normalized relations with Gulf countries. Syria tries to uh, normalize also with Syria, Egypt, uh, and also we, we should also mention uh, Israel. Mm -hmm. So from, uh, uh, from, from Greek, Greek side, uh, do you think it is a, it is a, a fundamental uh, transformation, uh, a permanent one, or is it a temporary one 
maybe because of Turkey's economic troubles. Uh, uh, what, what, what do you think about this change in Turkish foreign policy? Well, the short answer is, I think it's a temporary one. Let me be clear on that. That's my view. Uh, the long answer now. <laughs> uh, if we take a long perspective, I agree with, with, your, with your analysis of the, of, the, of the recent history of Turkish foreign policy. So I would say that during the tenure of Davutoglu, Ahmed Davutoglu, who was Erdogan's right hand at the time, former foreign minister, and remember the emphasis was on having no problems with Turkish neighbors. In the end, Turkey remained with no neighbors without problems. And that was a problem. And after Davutoglu's departure, Erdogan approach changed quite a bit from being somewhat conciliatory to largely aggressive. Now, as you say, and I agree with that, we may see a more pragmatic turn, a more pragmatic approach. And if anything, Erdogan is known for being a political beast and a skilled tactician, and he knows how to, to, to move around these difficult situations. And now, why I think that this is a temporary tactical softening and nothing more. New cabinet does not mean new beginnings. Turkey faces major economic challenges, the decline of the Turkish lira, high inflation, boring costs, long defaults, all, all things like that, that are very well known and um, very difficult. And at the same time, its air power is deteriorating to a very serious uh, point. An upgrade is desperately needed. So Erdogan is trying to address these problems while improving Turkey's relations through some symbolic gestures and some tactical measures. And the newly announced cabinet that we just talked about uh, is aiming to restore this international confidence, but it does not really mean any new beginning. And although there is some hope for that, I don't think that these expectations are real. Why? Because if we just take a step back, it's very easy to get carried away by recent uh, statements. But if we take a step back and remember trying to bring back into our minds Erdogan's vision for the century of Turkey, which includes promoting his version of Islamic conservative nationalism and trying to position Turkey as a world leader, as well as a leader in Islamic civilization, which is important for other countries, other Islamic countries in the region. So this vision implies a geopolitical conflict with other countries, possibly with the West, possibly it challenges the liberal international order in the region dominated by Western principles. And Turkey's flirtation with Eurasian powers, I don't think it's over. I'm talking about Russia, China, Iran. And I think this is a temporary softening to, to, to gain some, some breathing space, I would, I would say. So it's important to distinguish between these short-term tactical moves and the long-term 
strategic vision which has not changed. If anything, we are entering naturally, I mean, in Erdogan's last phase. We don't know how much it's gonna, it's gonna last, but it's supposed to be the last phase of Erdoganism. So this might also be his last chance to make his vision come true. So I think we have much more to, to see. And so these recent efforts to improve relations with these countries like Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the Emirates, and even Egypt, um, I think that they primarily serve some short-term economic uh, objectives and not a real big U-turn uh, in Turkey's orientation, in Turkey's vision, in Erdogan's vision of Turkey to be yeah, more accurate. I, uh, I want to a little bit expand uh, on the domestic politics aspect of Turkey-Greece relations. Um, in, as you know, in recent years, Turkey and uh, Greece, as always, actually, uh, has have uh, on and off, on, on and off uh, tensions. So uh, I'm wondering uh, their impact, these tensions impact on Greece domestic politics and how how uh, it changes uh, the the, uh, the the political dynamics uh, in Greece. Uh, just briefly. Um, well, that's 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 an interesting time. Why? Because we, uh, I think it's not very uh, uh, often that we both have elections, both in Greece and Turkey have elections at the same time. So that was an interesting test to see what each side, I guess, um, truly believes. So, funny, uh, let, let me share a story. Prior to the elections, I was asked to make predictions, which is something that uh, all historians hate <laughs> to do. Uh, let alone when, when even polls have been tremendously inaccurate recently and they ask for your predictions. So I anticipated a close call in both Turkey and Greece. And I think in Turkey, my prediction was fairly accurate, although Erdogan emerged victorious clearly once again. Um, nevertheless, the opposition in Turkey gained a significant percentage its best performance ever, which might bring some optimism for future elections uh, to the opposition. Um, in Greece, the outcome was quite different. Um, the outgoing party achieved a landslide victory. And we are now a couple of weeks away uh, of another election and the only question here in Greece now is how big a victory the outgoing party will secure nothing nothing really um, different than that so comparing the two results in Turkey and Greece we can make some observations um, first of all despite some natural government fatigue both governing par parties remained uh, in, in, in power and I think a major reason for that is the fragmented nature of the opposition in both countries for different reasons and different styles but the key um, characteristic is the fragmentation so in turkey there was an attempt to form a united front against erdogan but um, erdogan's 
argument against the diverse alliance, I think resonated pretty well with, with uh, voters. And um, they hoped for stability. And a similar situation unfolded in Greece, uh, where the outgoing party uh, uh, argued in favor of stability. Now, interestingly, to come back to your question, um, Greek Turkish affairs and disputes were not prominent, I think, in the election agenda of either country. And they were not in the top uh, issue. They were not top issue for, for, for either country, I think. And in Greece, discussions regarding Tur Greek Turkish relations mainly focused on the economic aspect of armaments rather than the underlying causes of armaments. So this makes me think that there is a bipartisan unanimity on the way Greece deals with Turkey. Um, one reason that there was not so much discussion about Greek-Turkish disputes during the election period is the moratorium that both sides agreed upon following the tragic earthquakes in Turkey in February, this dramatic natural disaster. Now, what happened then? Greece was among the first to offer assistance. And that was brilliant. Uh, but there is also a political reading of that. It was highly appreciated by the Turkish people, but at a political level, Greek aid also helped neutralize Erdogan's heated rhetoric up until then. In, an, in other words, it cancelled Erdogan's narrative. And remember, a catchphrase Erdogan used was that we will come during night. And when Greek aid came following the, tra the, the tragic earthquake, the response in Turkey itself was that, look, Greeks came during the day. So what this created was, besides an atmosphere of cooperation, which is natural when we have such dramatic events, at least, it also cancelled Erdogan's narrative. So he needed to come up with something with, with, with something um, uh, different. But I think at the end of the day, this is also temporary. We will see the return of tension. Tension is the normal condition in the Aegean, uh, across the Aegean. And I think we will see a return to tension uh, sooner or later. Um, now I want to little bit uh, switch to uh, United States role in Turkey-Greece relations. Uh, it is also a subject of your book. Um, historically, the United States uh, uh, has been playing a balancing role between it is two NATO allies, which is not easy. Uh, what I wonder is uh, how this triangle relationship uh, have evolved since the Cold War? Well, um, it's a little bit uh, large question, uh, very uh, maybe broad, but it's an excellent question. No, no, no. Um, no, although the US role in Greek Turkish relations has not essentially changed, 
some of its fundamental characteristics have changed significantly. And allow me to explain that. So first of all, Greece and Turkey today are way different from what they were back in the 1940s, uh, the days of Truman doctrine. Politically, economically, demographically, significant changes have occurred. Second point, the end of the Cold War marked the beginning of a new geopolitical period. Uh, Halford Mackinder, one of the founding fathers of geopolitics, said that each century has its own geographic perspective. Geopolitics is not a snapshot in time. Dynamics and trends are understood over the span of decades, really. So that being said, and taking into consideration the enormous systemic changes that the fall of the Soviet Union brought, the role of the United States has not changed, essentially. And why is that? So we are, we still are, in a transitional period, moving from the Cold War bipolarity to a US monopoly of power, this um, uh, short decade, long decade of the 1990s, and now we're moving gradually to a US-China geopolitical competition in which other major players might coexist, but we will see um, uh, uh, major rivalry between the two of them. What is otherwise called as the Thucydides trap? And what is that? This is whether the fear that the rise of China, like Athens, in the fifth century before common era. So whether this rise of China will create fear in the United States, and this leads to a new long and cold confrontation or even worse to a bloody, bloody war. Now, why is this important? It is important because in this new geopolitical framework, the Eastern Mediterranean already plays a central role. Therefore, the United States continues to have an interest in the region. And thus, the dilemmas within the triangle remain unabated. Now, a crucial new aspect to all of that is that the pendulum is swinging. What, is, what, is, what does that mean? So Greek-American relations at the point are on the upswing, while Turkish-American relations are worse than ever. Um, recent developments, including Turkish improved relations with uh, Russia, have raised questions about whether Turkey remains part of the West and whether the US role has shifted more to the Greek side. There is talk and speculation that Washington may even replace Turkey with Greece as an ally. Um, I have, a, I have a, to make a point about that. So I think that back in 2019, there was a question in the United States. And that question was, who lost Turkey? And this is a very interesting question. Why is that? Because there is a great significance behind this question. This question has been asked twice in the past. First, 
1949. And the question then was who lost China? Second time was in 1979. And then was who lost Iran? So now in 2019, I don't think that the United States would like to see this question again. Who lost Turkey? Because none of these losses were beneficial to the United States. So I think that deep down Washington does not want to lose Turkey, especially in view of the emerging new Cold War, let me, in lack of a better term, between the US and China. And why is that? Because Turkey's geography, just like Greece's geography, the Eastern Mediterranean has a special strategic value, which is invaluable for, for the United States and, and the West. Um, uh, so uh, then uh, how should we interpret uh, the United States' um, recent military investments in Greece? Uh, how, how do you see that? How do you uh, position uh, in, in the United States' uh, uh, policy towards Turkey? Um, that's that's a good question because that's that's a very interesting uh, shift. I think that at some point the United States felt or real, realized that Turkey under Erdogan's leadership was not as trustworthy a partner as it was perceived to be in the early days. Remember when President Barack Obama considered Erdogan as among his best friends, as he put it himself. And up until the 2010, up until 2010, 11, that was pretty much the state of affairs. That realization that the United States could not trust uh, Turkey that much, Turkey under Erdogan that much, I think caused the United States to counterbalance its over-dependence on Turkey and make these strategic investments in Greece as well. Because the geography of both allows that to happen. But remember, the geography of both allows that to happen. And the United States realizes, knows pretty well, uh, despite some opposite statement, statements now and then, they, the United States realizes that they need both Greece and Turkey as strategic allies. Both of them serve as watchdogs of the Mediterranean. And their strategic value is complementary. This is the biggest problem. So you cannot lose one or the other. The United States needs both. Uh, if one was lost, there would be a significant gap in the defense of the southeastern flank of NATO. Um, now, all of the United States has indeed shown some increased interest in Greece. It is important. It keeps us both on the ground that maintaining a balance between the two countries is critical to the U.S. geopolitical interests and the stability of the region. Is that easy? 
No, of course not. And Menendez is probably right in all of his points. I think he made somewhere like 12 or 13 points in his discussion with Secretary of State Blinken. But remember Blinken's response? Turkey is a challenging ally. Challenging, but ally. And this, I think, conveys the message that the United States needs both Greece and Turkey. Yeah. Um, lastly, uh, I want to discuss Erdogan's uh, threats, military threats to Greece. Uh, as, as you know, uh, Erdogan, as you mentioned, Erdogan has repeated these threats uh, several times. And some Turkish analysts said that we shouldn't disregard uh, or ignore such statements. Uh, uh, so do you think uh, a war between two NATO countries uh, are is a, is a reasonable expectation? And if so, uh, what would be the, the, the reaction uh, or position of the United States and European Union? Um, well, now, of course, war between two NATO allies seems highly unlikely. And I think at the same time that it is essential not to completely dismiss Erdogan's uh, statements and uh, threats. Why? I don't think that this is just about domestic consumption, as it's usually uh, referred to. And threats of military operations should always be taken seriously. Why? Because they can have significant consequences. They can escalate tensions. And it's crucial to remember that this, the underlying motives and uh, the geopolitical dynamics make this a transitory period and during transitory periods, this kind of tensions are more uh, common. So there is ground of concern. I think that the best way to avoid anything like that is to be prepared for such a scenario. I think that uh, this is the traditional uh, cliche that if you want peace, prepare for war. And I think there is a good rationale behind that. This is the only way to feel secure. And this will actually allow both countries to build better relations. If they, are, if they both feel secure, they will be uh, in better position to talk more freely. If they both feel secure, they, this will take out some of their fears and concerns about the motives or the goals of, of the other side. So in, in the event that we have a crisis, and of course, Clausewitz remind us, reminds us that war has its own uh, 
uh, grammar and we can never tell, I think we will not have something bigger than a crisis. Nevertheless, a crisis might be enough to bring the two states at a very difficult position and the United States in a very awkward situation because they will have again to deal with the two allies. They don't want to lose either one of them. Now, what can they do? And this is a very difficult thing and it's no, there is no recipe of success, first of all. But the study of past crises shows that the best way to avoid escalation into something bigger, into war, is to try to keep the same distance between the two sides and possibly manipulate the fears of either one of them. But at the end of the day, it all depends on the context, on the intervention of other forces, as well as on the capabilities of the mediators. It makes a huge difference. So in that case, uh, the United States and possibly the European Union as well, they would likely take a nuanced approach to manage the situation. They would seek to prevent a full-blown conflict for sure. And the focus would be on de-escalation and possibly find a face-saving solution uh, for both parties. Now, the buzzword here is compromise. This is a very difficult word for both sides of, of, the Aegean, of the Aegean. And why has it not been possible to find a compromise so far? I think that an American diplomat and expert uh, on uh, the triangle, late Mondegle Stearns, I think he offers the best explanation of why we haven't been able to resolve these bilateral disputes through a compromise once and for all. He said the following thing. He said that when tensions are high, compromise is unthinkable. When they are low, it's unnecessary. So this uh, means that we prefer to remain in this great situation rather than take some bold moves towards one or another direction. Dr. Katsoulas, uh, thank you for this nice conversation with, uh, with uh, full of great insights. Uh, I really enjoyed our discussion and uh, we would like to see uh, in our future programs. Uh, thank you very much. The pleasure was mine. Thank you very much.